it did exist in other countries. Russia and Germany and even America had some very sophisticated espionage networks at that point. Yeah. And Britain was just behind the game. Mm-hmm. And so because of the spy mania, when they realized they were behind the game, they said, okay, we need to take care of this. So we're going to form a new organization and we're going to combine all these different branches under one roof and have intelligence report to one central place. Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers, and welcome back to the podcast. This is episode five of season six. I feel like my guest today needs almost no introduction because she is so well-known as the best-selling Christie Award-winning author of historical fiction, Rosanna M. White. She's written a slew of historical fiction, which spans several continents and thousands of years. That's right from her bio. So also, she and her husband own Whitefire Publishing. So she also does um, design work for book covers. uh, And she just has her hands in so many areas of the publishing industry that as I talk to her in this episode, we discuss, you know, how do you do it all? But somehow she does, and she also found time to talk to me. So I'm really happy to have her on the show. She was my first ever interview on Historical Fiction Unpacked three years ago, and she's back today to talk about her new book. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Rosanna M. White. Rosanna, thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back. Yeah, you were on three years ago because you were my very first interview, and now the podcast is three years old. Yep, it's it's been a while. I imagine yes. we've both been busy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. Your latest novel, A Beautiful Disguise, released in August. It's the first of your Impostures series. Can you tell me about this book and the series as a whole? Sure. Uh, So the premise of the series is I have two aristocratic siblings. Um, Little brother is an earl now, and uh, his older sister is, you know, the earl's sister. Um, They discovered after their father died that their estate was on the brink of bankruptcy because of all the entertainments he had wasted his money on. Um, So these are things that made their childhood delightful. Like, you know, he brought in circuses and acrobats and theater troops and, you know, you name it. If it was entertaining, he would pay for people to come and do it and erected a gymnasium and basically a whole circus tent in their backyard sort of thing, Um, which was lovely before they knew that it was costing them everything. Um, So... They're in this position by the time, you know, our book opens where they've had to learn how to make money. <laughs> and so they did it in the expected way. Of course, they opened a private investigation firm <laughs> and use all of their acrobatic and theater and circus skills to spy on the rest of society. So they're basically spying on their own peers um, in order to, you know, find answers to questions and solve mysteries like any other PI firm, but with their unique skills to to add some interest. Um, So that's the premise for the whole series. Book one is about um, the older sister, Lady Marigold, and uh, they are hired to help determine whether someone is um, involved in espionage. And this, this question comes 
from some intelligence uh, divisions anyway, which are introduced by our hero, Sir Merritt Livingston. Um, he has been in the army. He's part of the Coldstream Guard, which we know as the people who are dressed in red and stand outside the palaces being all impassive and the changing of the guard and all that good stuff. Right. But they are, in fact, elite warriors. That's how they get that coveted position of guard- guarding the monarch. Um, mm. So... Sir Merritt is like a soldier of soldiers, um, but he caught pneumonia, it landed him behind a desk, and so he was assigned to this interesting thing um, that was a new development at the time. They were combining the intelligence divisions of the army, the military, or sorry, the army, <laughs> the navy, and the police for the first time in history, and they oh. called it MI5, which is still around today. So it was England's first unified intelligence branch. Um, so, you know, he is suddenly seeing all these correlations between things that have happened in the different branches. And it makes some questions come up, but he Mm. needs help solving it. So he calls on the imposters and that's where we start the story. Wow. That sounds so intriguing. Um, So I know that you've written a lot of kind of different facets of um, historical fiction. You've written biblical fiction and then a plethora of historical romances set in England and America, and some of those have included espionage. Um, so what inspired you to write this series in Edwardian England? Well, I was looking for something fun. <laughs> and uh, the the whole spy thing has kind of worked its way into my brand. So I wanted to find a way to to hook that in. Um, but also, I actually woke up one morning having this vague recollection of a dream I'd had Mm. that involved Edwardian era private investigators who were really aristocrats. And I was like, oh, that sounds like fun. So I just kind of sat on that as a little nugget for a couple of years and eventually combined it with um, these other ideas and, you know, threw in some circus elements as how they're doing their job. And yeah, so it was just a lot of fun to kind of combine some, some very unexpected aspects of Edwardian life um, with the intelligence and espionage that I've kind of gotten known for. And of course, a lovely romance. So it was just a way to pull it all together in a unique way and just so much fun. Yeah, that's amazing. And that the idea came partly from a dream. That's pretty cool. Right? Why doesn't it work that way all the time? Yeah, that would be great. (laughs) So can you tell us more about kind of the historical context of this time period? What was happening in the world that influenced the story? Sure. So this one is set in 1909. So in England at the time, tensions were continually rising between England and Germany. Um, Germany had just launched a a new kind of directive to build up their navy in response to England's designing of the dreadnought, which was the, you know, the premier battleship of the day. Mm. So the German navy was kind of, you know, saying, all right, time for an arms race. And England was like, fine, we'll do it too. Uh, So there was just a lot of tensions between those two countries. And it led kind of opened the door to what became a spy mania of the early 1900s, which I had never heard about until I was researching this book. Wow. Um, but apparently, there was an author. It always goes back to a novelist <laughs> who um, wrote spy novels. And they were all based on the assumption that the German Kaiser was sending spies into England. And um, 
it was totally preposterous, but everyone thought it was true. Like they knew it was fiction, but they thought he had an inside track and that he had oh. information no one else did. And it got to the point where every time like German tourists came through or, you know, there were German waiters, which there were a lot of at the time, um, people would call them in as suspicious. And the government was just inundated with all these reports of suspicious <laughs> German activity, which were totally just stupid and made up. But that's what spurred them to say, you know what, we need to actually get in gear and see what is going on so we can dismiss all these claims. Um, So that was that was kind of the background that I drew on. Um, But it was in in a broader sense, the early 1900s were really a, a time of change. It's when modernity really started coming in as we know it, you know, with electricity and automobiles and yeah. um, telephones and all of the kind of technology that, you know, leads to our modern world. It was all brand new then. So it was this time of kind of juxtaposition of old and new. There were, you know, horses and carriages and cars on the roads, Right. Uh, you know, some places with electricity, other places without. And so it's this beautiful clashing of worlds that just is a wonderful backdrop for a story. Yeah, that's great. It sounds like there was so much going on that made for a good story. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a little bit about how the sibling duo, their father, brought in circuses and like to their house. Can you tell me what role the circus and other performing arts play in this book? Yeah, sure. So um, at the time that the story opens, they have been reduced to having dismissed most of their staff. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, most manor houses had at least 90 servants on staff. Um, They had to dismiss them all because they had no money to pay these people. At this point, the only people still there working with them are actually a family of retired circus performers. So they're of the the gypsy sort of family, um, gypsy being people of Romani heritage who just travel around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they have retired to the Fairfax estate, Fairfax Tower. Um, and so they've set up their wagons and their circus equipment and uh, zebras are now pulling the lawnmowers and they oh have goodness. retired circus lions in the stalls instead of horses. Oh wow! Um, so it's really like a little enchanted world, but it's built on nothing but love and, you know, family, um, very little money left. So it's all, mm. it's a kind of ragged dream sort of thing. Um, but they also have like in their London townhouse, um, the person pretending to be the butler is an actor who is, you know, still working in the London theaters and his wife who is retired pretends to be their cook sort of thing. (laughs) So it's, they have just gathered all these entertainers around them as the people they love best and as their family. And that becomes, you know, their family and it's who they know they can rely on because they've proven themselves over the years. So a very, very colorful cast of characters for sure. Right. And then some of that background with watching the circus, at least, and um, I think you said he built it, their father built a gymnasium. Mm -hmm. And has this led to like training that has helped them, right? In their spy work? Yeah. So they are trapeze artists and acrobats and gymnasts. And that means they can like literally climb walls. (laughs) And um, because of their theater training, they can memorize very quickly. So they can just listen to conversations and memorize what they're saying and then report it to another member of the imposters team who knows shorthand who can record it 
on paper very quickly so they can build out all their files. Um, so they have those skills, which are very helpful, but then they also have access to all the inner circles of the elite. So they can get into the Marlboro Club and spy on the Duke and the Earl and the right. Marquez, you know, and they have access to all these places that a regular investigator never would because they are members of the elite. And then they can go unseen and get into places you wouldn't think they could because of these strange skills they learned from the other acrobats and circus performers and gymnasts. So yeah, it's a really interesting mashup. Yeah, that's great. So I thought you were going to say that that part came from a dream because that part is like what seems... Right. Like, how did you so. come out? No, how did you come I up with that? I honestly remember how that part <laughs> came to me. It was just one of those, oh, wouldn't that be fun? I think it was... Okay, I, I'm tracing it backwards here. Um, yeah. So my heroine uses high fashion, like haute couture, crazy styles as her disguises. Um, basically, she will wear the most outlandish things so that everyone looks at what she's wearing instead of her. So they don't really pay attention to her face. And they just look at her once and say, oh, there's Lady Marigold, and then ignore her. Um, so through this crazy costuming, I, I kind of thought of, oh, well, this is its costume, it's theater. So it's the character, the persona that she's built for herself. And so where would she have learned that? Well, I guess she could have learned it from actual theater people and, yeah. and actors. Well, they, well, you know, such groups did tour and um, noblemen did often bring them in to perform for the neighborhood. It's like, oh, and what else did they bring? Well, I did some research and it was like, they brought in circuses and they brought in all these other groups. So it was like, all right, well, let's just lean into that. Let's go with it. Oh, yeah, that's great. So you mentioned the MI5, Military Intelligence Section 5. Mm -hmm. Can you explain more about that and how it formed and how it also comes into play? You you said a little bit about it, but if there's more ways that it comes into play in this novel. Sure. So up until 1909, um, each division had their own intelligence group and network, um, and they were all pretty basic. Like they were very much behind where other um, countries were at the time. And in part, it was because they never talked. So the army did not talk to the Navy and the Navy did not talk to the police mm. and the police did not talk to anyone else. You know, you get the idea. Yeah. So it was all very insular. And because of that, very ineffective because no one would communicate with each other. Um, so they really had no structure. They didn't have a way to compare information. Um, so there was, there was just really no good way to track intelligence and they didn't really have much foreign intelligence in place. Like they had some rudimentary things. They had some, you know, the Navy would have sailors that they would send out to gather intelligence and, and so on for the other groups. Okay. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't the sort of James Bond intelligence that we, we think of in later times. Right. And the funny thing being, it did exist in other countries. Russia and Germany and even America had some very sophisticated espionage networks at that point. Yeah. And Britain was just behind the game. Hmm. And so because of the spy mania, when they realized they were behind the game, they said, okay, we need to take care of this. So we're going to form a new organization and we're going to combine all these different branches under one roof and have intelligence report to one central place. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they pulled in people from the different branches and basically just over the course of, you know, several months had them set up this centralized 
agency where everyone would still do their own thing, but they would report to them. And so then they could give directives for the different branches to act out and just have a way to kind of cross-reference each other so that they could really build a more comprehensive um, understanding of what was going on in intelligence. And that then later led to MI6, which is another group of intelligence, um, which is what the fictional James Bond belonged to. And Uh. um, MI5 is still around today. So it wasn't until semi-recently that, you know, the origins of MI5 were declassified. So I got a a giant, enormous book all about how it started. And that's where, you know, I learned about the spy mania and the novelist starting it all. And it was, it was really, really interesting. So I was like, okay, well, this is the year in question, 1909. That's when I'm writing. So let's just put someone right in the middle of it. Like, you know, he's in the army, he's assigned to help with this. And there's something going on that could ruin this whole thing before it even gets off the ground um, if they find out that there's a traitor in their midst. And so the the story about the traitor that I have in here, I'm not going to give too much away because it would spoil the ending. But it yeah. is, in fact, based on a true story from Russia. So not English, but from Russia. There was, mm. there was a spy master in Russia who was doing some pretty treacherous things to his own people. And I tell more wow. about that in the back of the book and the author's note. Um, but so totally fiction, fictionalized on my part, but actually based on real, real spy history of the time. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Now you mentioned ahead of time to me that part of your like theme in this book is the, the masks that we all choose to wear in public. Can you talk more about that and what role that idea plays in this novel? Absolutely. So Lady Marigold has very carefully crafted her mask. She is seen as a fashion icon and a mannequin, uh, but everyone is just so concerned with what she's wearing and the hat she has on that no one pays any attention to her. They don't get to know her. She has no friends in London. She, the, mm-hmm. Her only friends are her childhood friends. Um, and some of them can't quite understand how she went from being, you know, the girl next door to this, this thing who is only concerned with fashion. Um, so she's very much hidden from everyone who should know her. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, that's what she chose. And it works very well. And she's glad of that. And on the other hand, she just wants someone to know her. And I think that, you know, while this is obviously an extreme example and a fictionalized example, it's so true of modern life today that, you know, we carefully craft our images for social media or even for just out in public of who we want to be and who we want people to see when they look at us. Mm -hmm. And when we pay enough attention to that, that is in fact what they will see when they look at us. But let's be honest, that's never all of who we are. Even if it's true, it's never our whole truth. Right. And the more people just see our mask, the more we really long for someone to understand our depths. And that's why it's so important to have, you know, family and friends and just even if it's a handful of people who really know us and who we're vulnerable with and can be vulnerable with. Yeah. Because otherwise we get trapped behind our own masks. And that's what Lady Marigold is really wrestling with in this story is she has crafted her persona so well (laughs) that she doesn't really have too many people left who know who she really is. Mm, I love that. That's beautiful. Do you feel that writing this book changed your view of history at all? Um, A lot of it was stuff I had already known and researched from other books, but I did learn so much about 
I mean, the the formation of MI5 and especially the impact that novels can have on a culture, which, you know, I've been preaching forever. But to realize that, you know, the government formed an agency as a direct response to novels. Yeah, that's great. That is so cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Um, Can you share about your research process? How do you make sure your books are historically accurate? So... I usually will start online and I will just Google everything I can think of until I find something that catches my interest enough to pursue. And I'll read up on that and see if it works. And if not, follow a few bunny trails. Early research is very much just running on bunny trails (laughs) until I find things I like. And then once I land on subjects that I think will work for me, I'll usually search for the books that really cover them well. Um, I usually limit myself to one or two main texts as a resource when it comes to full books, because it's a lot to go through and they never agree. <laughs> so <laughs> if you look up, you know, mul- multiple books on history, they're, they're going to contradict each other constantly. So, uh, you know, I'll find my one or two sources that I consider my primary resource and I'll use those and, um, I'll generally take a week or two to just get my feet under me and do that research and read those books and see how I can build a story in that world. Mm. And then I just start writing. And um, at this point, I've written, you know, 16 or so books in this same era. Mm -hmm. So I have a pretty good foundation for the era itself. And then I can just do spot research on the particular things that I'm focusing on in this book or, you know, as I'm as I'm writing and come up with a question that it's like, oh, okay, what did lawnmowers look like in 1909? So, you know, (laughs) pause to do research on that and all that. Um, But yeah, it's a lot of, it's a lot of different kinds of research. Um, I do a lot of like YouTube video tours of a place so that I can get a feel for the, the Mm. area that I'm looking at a lot of image searches. Um, I will frequently listen to uh, YouTube interviews from certain areas so that I can get a feel for the dialect and the accent. Oh, that's great. And uh, yeah, so a lot of any any media I can yeah. find, I will use. So, but you've also been to England, right? Have yeah, you been once. Only once? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so did that help with kind of your sense of place or how do you feel? Oh, yeah, so much. Yeah. So obviously I have not seen all of England, but we went right. to the Cotswolds and then we drove down um, – south into Cornwall and mm-hmm. then back into London. So a, a pretty, you know, good swath anyway of England. And right. it was it was so informative. Um, those particular settings were settings in some of my earlier books. So that was very helpful because <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh man, I had way too many trees in Cornwall, that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, but then it really just gave me a, a much better feeling of place and idea of you know, the people and how they interact and just what the houses look like. Like, you know, you can see a picture, but that just usually shows you, you know, one little view. When you're driving through it, you get a sense of the whole landscape and, you know, the the villages and the cities and how the roads work <laughs> and all that. So yeah, very, very helpful. I go back to, to that visit in my mind and to my pictures many times as I'm writing. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, so you mentioned like you do your bulk of research over a couple couple weeks and then you start writing. How does your writing process go? Do you are you a plotter? Are you a pantser? Or what does that look like? Right. So I used to consider myself 
um, uh, like full on hybrid, like I would pants the first half and, you know, just mm-hmm. discover, see where I go. And then in the second half, I already had my ideas mostly sorted out. So I would write them down so I didn't forget them. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, with as many deadlines as I have, I have discovered that I need to write fast and I write faster and tighter when I am working off an outline. So I'll usually write the first three or five chapters without an outline because I just need to get a feel for the story and the characters and who they are. And then once I know who they are, I can get a better handle on the details of where they're going. So I will outline it. I'll usually outline half a book at a time, and then I can just sit down and hammer it out and you know write it pretty quickly. Um, Hmm. So that's my usual process now. And I, I do also always have to have a synopsis turned in for approval before I write a book. Um, so I have the general gist of the story already in mind by the time I actually start writing. Yeah. I deviate from it, of course, but it's at least an image <laughs> to refer back to. Right, right. That's good. You mentioned, I know all your ideas don't come through dreams, but how do you organize when you, because you're really seeing a number you're trying to write fast to get out your books and how do you organize the ideas you have when they come up right so i have a folder called ideas and um just on my computer and in that i have microsoft documents for each idea i have so i will literally just title something um imposter's dream idea and in mm. that i you know jotted down all the things that i thought of after the after i woke up from that dream and uh, cuz I, I did know that it was called the imposters limited was their oh, wow. their investigation firm um so i wrote that down and then it was it was like a year later i had this idea for um a heroine who hid behind high fashion and mm-hmm. i was like oh that would pair really well with the imposters idea so oh, i opened great. that back up and jotted down a paragraph about that and then a couple months later i had an idea for an opening scene for that. So I went in and jotted that down in there. I ended up not using it, but you know, it was still good brainstorming. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so that, I mean, that's how it worked for that one in particular. Um, Otherwise, as I'm developing out a story, I will, you know, create a folder for it individually and uh, just start a document with notes and I'll write down all my ideas, all my research, um, definitely record the links for all my research. Otherwise I can never find them again. Mm. And uh, I also even have a file for um, like marketing and website ideas to tie in with the book as I'm doing it. Uh, wow. Because that's when I'm feeling creative and I'm yeah. like, oh, I should totally have a fashion column written by Lady M, which I have now on my website. Oh, that's awesome. So I just, yeah, I put all my brainstorming in one place and it's just files on my computer. Right. So um, I know I asked you about this last time you were on the show, but that was a while ago. And so I'm going to ask you again because I just can't get over how much you do. (laughs) And I'm sure you get that a lot. But um, how many first, how many books do you release every year, would you say? Uh, It averages three to four. Um, This year, I am writing six, which means next year, I will release six, Mm. uh, which is the highest I've ever done. So there there are people who write more, but that's that's the most I've done in a year. That's a lot. Plus, you are... Um, you know, running a publishing company and yep. and cover designing, cover and design setting, and yep, yeah. So, how do you manage the writing? How does the writing fit in with all those other responsibilities you have? 
So during, during, you know, most days, I will take my morning to work on my stuff, whether that's writing or promotion or articles or whatever it is. Um, mornings are my work. And then in the afternoons, I'll do publishing and design work. Um, so that's okay. my, my basic setup, but that's not enough <laughs> to write six books a year. So I will also then take um, a week at a time where I will have cleared out all the other work and I will focus only on writing for a week at a time. And I call that my writing retreat mode. And I have, because I have given myself permission to ignore everything else and everyone knows that I'm not going to respond to them <laughs> until the next week, I can write, you know, 10,000 words a day or more. Wow. Wow. So that's really where the magic happens. And I can get, you know, shorter books for guideposts. I can get a, a book done in a week. Um, longer books for Bethany House, it takes me, you know, a week or two, or probably more like, you know, two weeks and then some in between. But it makes it um, easier to get things done in a hurry. Yeah, I guess so. So what you're saying is Rosanna M. White takes more time than yes. White Fire and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, that makes sense. So what are you working on next? Or is it the next installment for this book? Or that's already written, right? The second yeah, one. So I'm in I'm in the editing process for book two, which is a noble scheme. Um, I just turned in line edits, which is the second round edits for that. And I am about to start writing book three, which is called An Honorable Deception. Mm. And that one is due in November. So, you know, two months <laughs> to write that one. <laughs> Plenty of time. And um, I'm also working on some guidepost books. I have a biblical fiction I'm working on for them um, about the ripping of the veil in the temple when Jesus was crucified. Um, so working wow. on that. Uh, that one is also due in November. So I'm about halfway done that one right now. And I have a Christmas short novel that I have written the first draft of and just got some edits back on that. Um, so yeah, that's that's what's on my horizon right now. I'm writing wow. two books due in November and editing three. <laughs> wow. So can you tell us anything about books two and three in the Imposter series? Sure. So book two is about our other two official imposters members, Gemma, who is the, um, she's an expert in shorthand. So that is very helpful for that work, but she's also a columnist for a newspaper. Mm. So she records everywhere Lady Marigold called Lady M goes and provides her with alibis. And also it just gives her a way to kind of um, get in and get information. She has invitations to a lot of places because of her work. Um, and Graham is an architect and he is specifically an architect who specializes in recreating buildings based only on um, historical records. So he spends a lot of time in the British archives um, looking at all the, um, the schematics that have been filed for historic buildings. And through those, he can find ways for the imposters to get in and out unseen. So he's a, a very useful <laughs> part of the staff as yeah. well. And we learn in book two that there's something going on between them. They have some history that that is pretty mm. um, mysterious still in book one. So in book two, we're exploring that as they seek to find a kidnapped child over the holidays. Um, and, and restore him to his parents. So that's what book two is all about. And book three will follow Yates, who is um, Lord Fairfax, Marigold's little brother. 
And he has a point of view in each of the other two books, too, and he's pretty hilarious. So um, he has definitely been jostling for front row <laughs> and to take center stage. So um, book three is about him. Yeah. And we have, on the one hand, um, an interim imposter who's helping out while some other people are out of commission, who we meet in book one. Um, she's Lavinia. She's a childhood friend of um, Yates and Marigold, and he always had a crush on her. Uh, but then he also has this very lovely client who comes along whose life is in danger and who really needs his help. And, you oh. know, so, so it's a love triangle oh. with the man in the center instead of the woman, which is not wow. what we usually have. In yeah, romance. that's interesting. So. Very interesting. Um, so this is my last question for you. It's kind of a fun question. If you could choose to live in any time in history other than right now, what time period would you choose to live? Oh, gosh, that is a hard one. Let's see. When was there not a great big war to ruin everything? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> not, not too many of those. Um, I mean, assuming I can't travel back and forth and back and forth, I, I might I might pick Edwardian because it had a lot of the um, modern conveniences that I really like, like indoor plumbing, yeah. but there's still that old world charm. So I, I might go with that, like the early 1900s. Yeah. Yeah. I love that time period too. Well, Rosanna, as always, this has been a wonderful conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? Uh, you can pretty, find pretty much everything on my website, which was rosannamwhite.com. I have newsletter sign up there. Um, that's where I share news weekly. Um, that's the, the main way to stay up to date on my world. Mm -hmm. And you can find me on all social media platforms at Rosanna M. White. So same, same name on all of those makes me easy to find. And uh, there's contact forms on my website if you want to email me. And I always love hearing from readers on any platform you find me on. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun. Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Rosanna. I loved having her on the show again after these years have gone by. Um, I hope you go to the show notes and check out her books and the links to her website and social media. You can find those show notes either in your listening app or on my website at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. And I want to ask you to do one more favor for me, and that is to join my newsletter list. If you would like to sample some of my writing and to learn more about what I write and what I do, then just sign up on my website at alisontreat.com and you'll receive three emails introducing myself and sharing some freebies with you. And after that, it will just be one newsletter a month sharing some of my research and my current reads, as well as what's going on on the podcast. So if you want to stay plugged in, that's how to do it. Now, I would like to leave you with a quote as always. This one comes from John Lacar. He said, once you've lived the inside-out world of espionage, you never shed it. It's a mentality, a double standard of existence. So think about that, my friends, and keep reading historical fiction. I will talk to you again next week. <laughs>